We almost never talk about this in marketing because we think of advertising as causing sales, grabbing consumers by the scruff of the neck. Well, then why you should just you know admit you don't know how to do your job. Yeah. You know, a banana is just amazing. How can we improve on the banana? It's like you can't. Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. And we've got a really big episode for you today. If you were to ask me what book has had the biggest impact on my career in marketing, I would tell you it's How Brands Grow by Professor Byron Sharp of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. I first met Byron back in about 2010 when he was on tour uh, with the, the, the first edition of the book. And I was profoundly struck by the empirical evidence that he presented for the laws of marketing. And perhaps what was most surprising is many of the things I thought I knew turned out to be wrong. There were so many myths in marketing that we all kind of assume or, or have come to believe over the years. And the evidence really does point you in the other direction. And Byron does that brilliantly in the book and also in his talks as well. I've used this book time and time again. It's probably the one that I've bought most often for marketing teams that I've led. And it's the one book that I read again and again when I'm doing marketing to remind myself about the empirical laws of marketing which dictate how brands grow. I put out a LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago asking for questions for Byron and I was inundated with lots and lots of questions. So I hope I have done them justice. But uh, this is my episode with none other than Professor Byron Sharp. Byron, thank you so much for joining the show. It's a pleasure. I look forward to your long list of questions. Yes, um, I think I've had more questions for you than probably any other guest I've ever had. So a tremendous response on LinkedIn when I said that we, you were coming on the show, which is great. Look, I, I'm sure there are not many people that don't know you, but just for the benefit of anyone listening that's not come across you yet, could you just introduce yourself and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute? So I'm Byron Sharp. I am a professor at the University of South Australia in the business school, but I'm sort of an unusual professor in that I, I'm a research professor, so I only do uh, guest lectures. And, and my main job is directing the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science at the University of South Australia, which is, it's like a medical, it's very like a medical research institute, except that we study marketing, you know, buying and selling and how brands grow. Well, let's start then, then. Why write the book in the first place? I mean, we were just saying, weren't we, off air, that you and I met back in, I think, 2010 at Britvic, where you came over and did a, a tour of the UK. So why write the book in the first place? Because uh, we were told to. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, we have, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute has advisory boards in Europe and North America. And I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been the European one. Said we need a book that you know we can give to the CFO and and the CEO and say you know we're making changes in marketing again, but but this time there's some <laughs> real science behind it. As I, as I like to point out to people, that that's why it was launched. With I mean you know it had to be a hardback and it had to have a prestigious publisher you know to fill that brief, but. You wouldn't choose Oxford University, University Press if you wanted to write a bestseller or something. But that was okay. But uh, uh, yeah, I, it, you reminded me though that I had just finished, I think, running quite a exciting advertising research conference with Jerry Wind at, at the Wharton Business School. And I told Jerry that, you know, I was writing this book and, and he said, oh, Wharton, Wharton Publishing would love to publish it. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that would suit the bill. That's excellent. So we told them about it and they went, no, 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 we've already got several branding books in the pipeline. <laughs> so their loss was Oxford University Press's gain. Um, oh, that, that's like those up. stories you read from Dragon's Den, isn't it? Where, where they turn them down for an investment and then they go on to, you know, make hundreds of millions of pounds I think later. J.K. Rowling got turned down multiple times for Harry Potter. Well, listen, I, I thought I would start our conversation with purpose. As, as we're going audio, not visual, I'll, I'll just read out this uh, story that broke last week from Unilever, which I thought was quite interesting. And uh, I don't know if you remember this quote. I think it's a couple of years ago from um, Alan Jope, who said, we believe the evidence is clear and compelling that brands with purpose grow. In fact, we believe this so strongly that we're prepared to commit that in future, every Unilever brand will have purpose. And then there was a bit of a shareholder revolt. Uh, I think it was last week or the week before now. Terry Smith, who's ninth or 10th largest investor in Unilever, said a company which feels it has to define the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise has, in our view, lost the plot. The Hellman's brand has existed since 1913. So we would guess that by now consumers might have figured its purpose out. Spoiler alert, salad and sandwiches. 
I'd love to know your take on this debate. So are, are we as marketers rather too obsessed with purpose and is there any evidence for it? Yeah, I think I'm on well record of, of saying that it's potentially a distraction. Marketers are very good at getting distracted by every new shiny thing. And this one is also something sort of dear to, I mean, I think most marketers are nice people and, uh, you know, we all want to do good for the planet and things. So there's a certain seductiveness about this. But as far as uh, research and things, there's not a lot. And so the, the Institute actually has a research program at the moment looking at the empirical claims that are mm. being made for purpose. Does it encourage consumer loyalty? Does it allow brand to have price premium? And does it allow for growth? So, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing that thing. And so I think the I think Alan's quote there is, we believe the evidence is clear and compelling that brands with purpose grow. Well, there's I, no, no such clear and compelling <laughs> evidence. There have been some claims, but they've been shocking, shoddy research and people with vested interests. So so we'll, we'll, we'll go and have a look at that. I mean, I can't comment on Terry Smith. I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, it's the full right of investors to get angsty and, and tell off management if they think they're being distracted. Yeah, I mean, it's for the market to decide that, isn't it? This is a reminder, though, as marketers, we've got to be careful when we say things like, you know, we, we, I mean, classic is saying, well, we're doing this, you know, it's not designed to get sales or it's not designed to get profits. It's, it's, and then you go, well, wait on, it's not your money. Yes, I mean, <laughs> that's very you true. Know, there's an ethical thing that we as business people, particularly if you're a public, company you know you're working for mums and dads who are your shareholders so if i said the Aaronburg bass institute is gonna we're gonna make a donation every year to i don't know the adelaide zoo or something because i love the zoo you know i'm i'm a member of the royal zoological society of south australia and so you know that would be and that would be going beyond my thing as director i don't have the right to do that and spend the money of the university and my staff yeah. so i Guess so we should only be doing if there are some business results and, and then well people need to do some research and, and try to find out yeah. that and, and how to do it how do you do purpose right so that you're hopefully doing yes. some good for the planet but not destroying your brand i did yeah. recently point out that something that no one has mentioned that there's a potential risk that if we as brand builders teach consumers to only buy brands that you know not only go well on your salads and sandwiches but also provide schooling in Tibet or something. There's a real danger that we'll then just get picked off by the uh, retailers because the retailers can copy that just overnight. I mean, it's just so simple. Fantastic. Great. Thank you, definitely. big brands, for teaching people to do that. And now we'll yeah. announce uh, Tesco's Tibet Education Fund brand. We'll do our own. Yes, yes. It's a lot less sonable. I, I thought Peter Field did some good work on it, actually, but he was very misrepresented because um, I, I, I sat and listened to him at the F-Works and... What he was showing is on average, looking at the IPA case studies, purpose was less effective, but in a small number of cases where it was connected to the brand's own purpose and it was a relevant topic for the consumer base, it, it, it occasionally works sort of thing. Almost everything occasionally works. That's... Occasionally works, yes, exactly. Just find the ones that, the ones that did work. That's right. It was, quite, it was quite a lot lower, actually. I think it was on average 1.6 so the on average overall there were 1.6 large business effects i think he was measuring you know a range of business effects and it dropped to 1.1 with purpose so that's quite a big drop but what was interesting about it is when he dug in the detail a lot of the reasons or a lot of the benefits were actually business to business it was it was sort of you know i, I like to work for the i feel proud of my company you know it was qualitative reasons or, or i like to do business with other businesses that have got a got a strong purpose so a lot of it seemed to be business to business benefit rather than necessarily than what the consumer was looking for i don't know i i mean i saw that analysis and i was quite shocked actually i thought it was <laughs> I give a lecture for PhD students at the university on one of the things about corruption in science. And one of the things that can corrupt science is good intentions, you know, trying to save the world. So you sort of want mm. the results to show. And I think Peter took the APA case studies expecting that purpose campaigns would do better. They didn't. And didn't he or his sponsors didn't like that. So they went, well, what if we just look at the, the ones that were successful? Yes. <laughs> and so they presented those. It's like, we picked the successful purpose campaigns and guess what they were successful but we don't actually know if it's because of the purpose because i mean it's just correlational data and a weird i mean it's not even real world data it's case studies written by agencies when they think they've done a campaign that might win a sales effectiveness award so i mean it's a it's a and peter and, and lesbonette and I, we, we should all know lesbonette was not associated with it no way endorses it you know but they have always been up front it's a very odd data set 
you know, you can't draw much about the real world from it. And in this case, nothing. So we, we don't know. I mean, I, I don't think we learned anything from that. Wait, when's the Ehrenberg Bass Insight on Purpose coming out? When we do the research, at the moment, the team has, has worked out the claims that people are making that are testable. Yeah. And then we'll look at the testing and, and we'll see. Brilliant. Well, listen, let's get into How Brands Grow book, because I remember, you know, going back to maybe 2010, I remember you did a tour of the UK. I was working at Britvic at the time and really profoundly struck by by your book. And I, re- I was rereading it last week and it really struck me, the um, the introduction. And I, I, I love the marketing assumptions that you start out with. And you, you sort of read this and, you know, as a casual reader, you go, well, of course, all these things are right. You know, differentiating is our most vital marketing task. You know, loyalty metrics reflect our strength, not our Size, customer attention is cheaper than acquisition promotions boost penetration not loyalty and, and so on and so forth and and of course you then go on to sort of bust those myths quite spectacularly with uh, evidence and data of course which is what is so powerful about the book so you've obviously you know spent the last 10 years you know promoting the book and talking a lot about it in terms of reaction to it which of the myths has gone you know has had the biggest response which of the myths has been the most sort of one that's caused the most reaction or been the biggest surprise well of course the double jeopardy law the fact that loyalty is predictable it's a bit like gravity really it's not really sort of in our control and uh, except for if if we gain more customers if we if we increase our mental and physical availability is probably the thing that gets the most attention but we survey top graduates coming out of the bachelor of marketing who you know want to come and 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 study and work at the Irrenberg Bass Institute, we, we surveyed them and asked them, you know, what was the most surprising thing to you when you, mm. you, know, when you first came across this? And um, I think the one that comes up is actually that the user bases of brands, of competing brands, varies so little is the yes. number one thing that they went, I just, yeah, I just really, just, it just seems so intuitive that, you know, Nike customers would be different from Adidas and mm. different from Fila. And then you just look at the data, it's like, Oh, wow. It's true. Yeah. You have that moment as a brand manager. It's all, it's almost like you're being cheated on. It's you know, you assume that your buyers are your buyers and they only buy you and you go, "Oh no, they buy me occasionally and they buy all my competitors mostly." Well. It's just yeah. this it's this awful dawning reality that that you're not as special as you thought you were. Yeah. I think when you take over a, a new brand, it's almost one of the first things that you you ask like what's different what about my customer you know and so you commission some research you know you've you've moved from pepsi to what's that orange one that you have in the uk um, tango do you tango? tango you know so you say yes, you've been on pepsi cola and then yeah. you moved to tango yeah and so you instantly go so so what's my customer you know so it's got to be a different sort of customer you know yeah. rather than going i'm still selling to people who buy soft drinks so it just seems intuitive but uh we sometimes do get asked at erinburg bass institute you 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 really very controversial you know it's kind of these radical findings and we go well we consider ourselves pretty old-fashioned scientists if you, if you actually look at any area in science almost every scientific discovery i mean it makes sense afterwards 10 years afterwards mm. we we're all relaxed and comfortable it. about it yeah. but but at the time it's usually pretty weird and that's just because yeah. the real world is actually a pretty weird place. It, yes, it, it, no, exactly. The controversy is not what you're finding. The controversy is the fact that we thought something else in the first place is the controversy, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, our, our intuitive feelings are not uh, good for... If you think about it, we've got brains that have evolved for keeping us alive essentially on the African savanna. Mm. And uh, thank goodness they did. That's, you and I wouldn't be here. My job as a brand manager, and I sell to two billion people in all sorts of different countries around the world, and I'm trying to, and I have to understand modern markets, and so far removed from, you know, wondering whether a lion is going to eat you or something. I mean, it's just we, we're dealing with quite abstract things. Markets are abstract, brands are abstract, and we're dealing with numbers that are, you know, our brains aren't even, you know, designed to deal with numbers like a billion. So mm. it's not surprising that our intuitive way of looking at the world is going to be usually wrong. So let, let, let's talk double jeopardy. It's one of my favourite ones, you know, favourite sort of myths in the book. And and, and I wonder if the, the, the problem here is that as a small brand, I mean, I've managed quite a few small emerging brands in my career. And what typically happens with a small brand is you, you often know your audience quite intimately. You follow, you know, you follow the Twitter feed because you're a small brand, you can answer everything. And you sort of build up this, this, this impression that, well, it, you must have a very loyal follower base because you're sort of overexposed you know you do the trade shows and you meet your customers individually you know when you start out do you do you think 
and of course as you get bigger you get more detached and is that partly why marketers have this false belief that smaller brands must have more loyalty it's almost because they're closer to them and therefore they they they, they make that assumption is that why do you think i, I guess we always we, we don't see what we're not seeing <laughs> so it's, it's awfully hard yeah. to see our very light occasional buyers because uh, they don't come around very often uh so we naturally see our heavier we naturally you know, we talk to our colleagues and things, and, and, and for us, yeah. the brand looms rather large. You know, it's paying our salary. Yeah. <laughs> so we get a distorted view of the world. I mean, small brands do. They do get nearly, almost instantly, get, they get some loyal customers. They just don't have enough customers. They don't have enough yes. customers. And I think people understand that, that they don't have enough customers. No, I think it really stems from things that I sort of joke. You know, like if, you, if you're in a company and, you know, okay, you're, you're at Britvic and someone's been given Pepsi and that's a super big mm. brand, but you've been given, mm. I don't know, diet, caffeine-free something. Really. You've know, been given a really yeah. small brand. We like, you know, no one, no one ever, you know, if they're met at a party and you go, you know, I, I work on such and such and people go, oh, wow, I haven't heard of that one. No one <laughs> replies, oh, well, it's a, it's a very small brand, hardly bought by anyone and those who do, they're not very loyal and hardly ever buy it. No one wants to say that. Well, Byron, you've just described my job at Britvic, by the way. When we met, it's quite funny. When we met and you, you did your presentation, I just started working on the small brand portfolio. So hence why I was paying a lot of attention to what you're right. saying. Well, Question. the reason that you don't know is because it's, it's, a very, it's a very niche. It's a very niche brand with a very discerning audience. And it has this small but very highly loyal. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's what, I mean, that sounds better. It just turns yeah. out that's not really the case. In fact... We, we've done research in recent years on, on very, very small brands. And if anything, they tend to have even less loyalty than you'd expect with, from Double Jeopardy. And, and, and so the paradox is they have, a, they have a bigger customer base than you would expect for their size. And what that's suggesting is that they are suffering from uh, a lack of overlap in their mental and physical availability, which is just so much easier if you're, if you're a very big brand for, the, for yeah. the mental and physical availability to overlap. So they're getting some purchases from people who purchase because it happened to be on aisle display or they saw it that day, whatever. They purchase it, but they don't come back because they've forgotten what it was. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, you know. Uh, yeah, I went to that, you know, particular, you know, coffee shop and I bought that drink. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was green. Yeah. And what was the brand? I don't know. You know, I mean, kombucha is a, is a, is a big thing in the UK. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, there's lots of brands like that. People go, yeah, 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 yeah organic kombucha. The brown yeah, bottle one that looks like yeah, medicine yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, what brand? Yeah, that one. Uh, I don't yeah. know. So it's very hard I for you to be loyal then. Right. And this is a, a thing that small brands suffer from. And is one of the important things of advertising. It's so much easier to become loyal to a brand for it to get into your head for mental availability if after purchasing it, you see an ad for it. We almost never talk about this in marketing because we think of advertising as causing sales, grabbing consumers by the scruff of the neck and dragging them <laughs> in. We never think of that, oh, actually, sometimes it works because someone had already bought, but we reminded them. <laughs> Yeah, you bought our kombucha and and you liked it. We're the brown one. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about to what extent does physical availability influence double jeopardy? So, because so if I go back to my seed brands example at Britvic, what I noticed is the more physical availability I got, the more penetration I was driving. So, if you take your you know your Pepsi example, which is the biggest brand that Britvic held, there were huge numbers of different pack formats and sizes, and you know even flavor variants and sugar levels. And Pepsi was in ninety percent of all stores. Yeah, you know, me working on my brands you've never heard of, but you will hear by this time next year portfolio. <laughs> you know, I had an almighty battle just to get physical availability. What I noticed is actually is that the more I focused on getting good quality physical availability in the right sort of channels I grew penetration quite spectacularly sort of thing it is it is physical availability influencing double jeopardy because as, as a as a as a new customer you just can't find it when you're in in the market to buy sort of thing is, is that is that linked in that way well it's both I mean it's mental and physical availability that's the availability and yeah that is the that is the contribution of how it's a big contribution I, it's actually sort of a theoretical one. That is the theory that, that fits with all those laws. 
which is a sort of a surprise. I mean, it says brands largely, not entirely, you know, there's pricing and other things as well, but, and particularly in the long run, it's a battle for mental and physical availability, overlapping, like, wow. It's both, uh, I need to be able to find it mm. and I need to be able to remember it and, and, and come to mind sort of thing, both those things kind of together. Yeah, and uh, that's a great challenge when you're a small brand and when you're a new brand, mm. you, you know, it's hard to win physical availability, hard to win mental availability, it's particularly hard to get them to overlap. Yes. Because yes. I mean, it's a killer. You know, you get into a new store. You know, you get into a store. You know, your sales team gets you into a store. That's great. But then you think, oh, my God, you know, 99 point something percent of the people coming into the store don't have me in their head. So they're probably not going to see me. They're not going to know what I am. And they're going to So that my return on that physical availability is going to be terrible. Oh, no. And likewise, you know, you do the other way. You know, I'm going to do some advertising, but I haven't got the physical availability. But no one can find you in store. Oh, yeah. no. So that my return on yeah. the advertising is going to be terrible. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's it. And that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come, we'll which, come which, back to Which I don't brands. mention yeah. in How Brands Grow. That is, a, that is an omission. I don't mention about the concept of overlap is very important. Big old yeah, just established got, brands, big... their marketing department can be a little bit, you know, can be less obsessive about this. They can be less effective and things, but there will be that sort of overlap. When you're new and small, wow, you, you really have to be obsessive about that. Well, that was going to be one of my questions for you, because certainly if I go back to my Britvic example, I had to be more obsessed about my physical availability and getting it right, it's getting the right shelf space, getting good space, you know, making the packaging absolutely brilliant you know you, you almost have to be two or three times better than established brands just to compete really well yes that's why it's hard yes, yes exactly well that's why so many brands that we buy today are the brands we were buying 10 years ago there are so few new brands in the sort of top you know the top 10 even on social media actually which is quite an interesting one everyone assumes that you know we've only had social media for 15 years but you look at the platforms we use today versus even 10 years ago when they were nascent i think eight or nine of them are still the same i think there's maybe tip tiktok or there's very few actually in the top 10 that are actually you know were invented in the last within the last 10 years which is astonishing consumers are naturally loyal Yes. Another another thing that struck me, and, and um, so I, I, I was at Britvic. I also worked at Suntory, which owns Lucasade and Ribena. Lucasade yeah. is the number one energy drink in the UK. And we had a, something of a crisis, actually, because uh, we were facing sugar tax. This is back in 2016. We had oh, yes. to reformulate. And we got quite an astonishing backlash, actually, from uh, consumer. I won't go into all the all the reasons for what went wrong. It was, it was an entire podcast in itself, actually. But the reason for telling you the story was so when when the team and I were looking at what we how we respond to a decline in sales, we had about a twenty percent decline of in sales and number of buyers in about twelve weeks. I don't think I've ever been in a situation where I've lost so much. How brands yeah. decline would be the book I'd be writing, um, or how brands can decline quickly if you if you get it wrong. Anyway, I, I I bought a copy of your book for the entire team and sent them away for for uh, a couple of days and said, "Come back to me with the answer." And um, it was really interesting because the, the idea that light buyers account for so much of your sales was was incredible, and, and it was a real revelation because as the brand leader, we were we were getting complaints on Twitter. We're having our customer service lines were going mental, you know, because we were so close to our heavy buyers you know we were full of what our heavy buyers are thinking and doing right here right now but when we looked at the data it was incredible so I think now I need to try and remember the data points correctly but I think we worked out our average buyer buys the brand twice a year or something like this so this is the number one energy drink in the UK yes that would be quite normal and and so when we were thinking about our relaunch campaign being eight weeks we're hardly even going yes. to communicate. Yes. To, we're not going to get remotely close to the average buyer. But this is a data point I want to tell you because it was it was incredible. Um, that the team presented. I asked the team, "Well, what's our penetration in the UK?" And it was twenty six percent. And then they presented a chart which showed that forty percent of our audience were new. And I'm like, that can't be right. We're we're a eighty five year old brand with a brand leader. What are you talking about? I said, look at the data over longer time sets. So I, I sent them away again. They came back and presented the data over three years. Penetration was forty six percent. So what we found was it was at, actually what the data was telling us is that we had a lot of ultra light buyers that, yes. that weren't even buying once a year. Twenty yes. percent of the UK population buys Lucasaid between one and three years. And I was just like, this is insane. Yeah. We don't want an eight-week 
campaign. We need an eight-year campaign. <laughs> exactly. And, and, this is, and this is, you know, in How Brains Grow, I chose Coca-Cola because it's the biggest brand you can think of. Yeah. And, and to shock people to say that, no, you know, if you buy Coke more than twice a year for yourself, you're, you're one of the heavy buyers. But yes, this is the case. So this is why change is potentially very dangerous. A lot of your sales this year will come from people who haven't bought you for a year or two. Mm. And you don't want to be giving them reasons not to buy. Like you don't look, the, the pack doesn't look like it did two years ago. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Or, this is probably... or maybe, I don't know, or you're telling them it's a new formulation. We've reduced the sugar or something. I mean, they don't buy you very often and it's very easy for them to go, oh, I don't know about that and buy something else. But you know what's very, very interesting, actually? You'll be pleased to hear this. Our, our initial response was go out and do a communication to everybody that we've reduced the sugar, right? And also refresh the pack design to sort of modernize it, right? right. Which was, which was yes. wrong, right? So that, that was what we initially did. Then, then we read the book and then we sort of looked at the data and we went, hang on a minute, we need to go back out with something old, right? So I'll tell you what we did, which uh, oh. might amuse you. The, the, the brand had done a partnership with Lara Croft Tomb Raider from 20 years ago. And of course, mm -hmm. association between Lara Croft and LucasAid, you know, w w was very strong. So we actually got back in touch with Universal and we did a partnership with the new Tomb Raider that was coming out in, you know, six months after we'd done our relaunch. So we actually got together with Lara Croft. We didn't change the pack design, so we kept it the same. And we, we doubled our efforts in physical, well, building displays in stores. We did lots mm -hmm. of sampling. And uh, we did this association with Lara Croft, which, which was the beginning of the turnaround. And I think within 12 months, we'd got back into growth. I think we got, we were up 8%, having kind of declined 20% the year before sort of thing. But it was, it took a lot of doing the basics incredibly well. Yeah. When you've got, you know, as I say, consumers are naturally loyal, but we have to sort of respect that loyalty and that for an awful lot of them, it's not because they're madly in love with our brand. It's just because, yeah, it's a small part of my life and yeah, I occasionally do buy that one. And so we must be very careful not to give them reasons not to upset that. I remember the CEO of McDonald's in Australia saying they want they wanted to you know improve their nutrition things and they've been they've been doing a whole lot of things to you know make things better but they decided they should tell people that their that their shakes used low-fat milk and they got all this negative feedback about like why are you changing the shakes and they were like no it's it's always had low-fat milk yeah <laughs> we haven't actually changed anything and so they realized they should have just shut up about it yeah yeah there's, there's a lot to be said for not changing when i put out the, the linkedin post in anticipation of our conversation, one of the most common questions, and I, I know you address a lot of this in How Brands Grow Too, of course, is uh, do the laws vary based on different categories? So, for example, you know, automotive, where you buy a car every three years. I mean, that's an ultra light, or I suppose, light in the sense of how often you buy it or subscription services like Netflix and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. To what extent do does the category you're in change the laws or, or are they quite universal? Uh, well, they are quite universal, which is why we call them laws, which I mean, a scientific law just means uh, a pattern that keeps repeating across mm. a, a lot of different conditions. And but, you know, every category has its nuance, its different distribution channels, different ways of advertising and things like that, which which uh, is why people become experts in those in those areas. But the fundamental thing. So, I mean, I think I, you know, I show automotive data in, in how brands grow and you, you don't tend to use metrics like average purchase frequency and things you use things like repeat rates and but they show you know double jeopardy patterns in some ways it should be easier for you know automotive to understand that they've got yeah very light and frequent buyers who most of the time aren't, mm. aren't thinking about them but i remember a while ago someone who was in sort of premium whiskey you know another category that people buy very very sort of infrequently and and then saying well, actually we're no different you know like we please think it's very different but when i look at you know, i look at fast moving consumer goods it doesn't look that different they've also got the same thing plays out you know, yeah they've got about 80 percent of their consumer for a typical grocery product grocery brand 80 percent of their buyers buy at a rate of once a year or less often like yeah. once every two years once every three years once every, and they give you about 40 percent of your sales so suddenly that doesn't look that different from something like a high-end whiskey well that's exactly you, the lucasade yeah. data yeah that would be yeah. identical in fact so i yeah. mean it's a little what different a... but 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 not massively yeah i mean i don't i don't want to you I know mean, i do get these questions and i sometimes sometimes the questions are are, are very clever 
questions because they're saying, well, wait on, this category has, like in luxury, people said, but, you know, mm. and, and, we, and we, we did, I think, I think some really, I mean, you know, we're quite proud of it, research that makes up the chapter in How Brands Go To on luxury products. But people raised the thing of surely mass distribution would, would make the brand less appealing. And, you know, so you know, they put up some, some you know, reason, what seemed to be, you know, reasonable empirical claims that we could go and test. But other times, I, I, I sometimes shake my head when people are saying, you've got to tell me how it works in the uh, buckwheat flour industry. And I, and I think <laughs> you're, you're paid a good salary to have an imagination yeah, and yeah. to be able to take something and apply it to your area. And you, but you want me to spell it out for you. Well, then why, you should just you know, admit you don't know how to do your job. You're quite right, though. But it's funny because as marketers, we, we do get overly obsessed with our, our category. And I remember years ago, a colleague of mine, she worked in butter. And I didn't realize that in butter, they refer to the category as yellow fat, yes, the which yellow I just fat. think is the most horrible like way awful, of describing yes. what you do. And yes. she, she was the yellow fat controller. And I'm like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. I thought that came because of the Nielsen, Nielsen data. Yeah. Yeah. Some absurd reason why you might do that. Or, or, or I met the brand manager on KitKat and, and she was the two finger brand manager and there was a oh. four finger brand manager because they oh, divided right. the portfolio by how many fingers of KitKat there were. You know, it, it, it's quite funny, isn't it? But I think this is this is why I think your book is so important, because you're looking empirically, you're looking across data sets and so on and drawing the laws. But of course, as marketers, we, we do get rather obsessed with our own category and the slight nuances and believe that therefore nothing else could possibly be the same as the yellow fat category. Or even countries, you know, we always joke that, you know, France, the French in particular, oh, this is very interesting. But uh, of course, France is different. Yeah, it's partly I wonder if it's because as human beings, we notice difference more than we notice similarity as well. Because because yeah, I, I find that in the job I do is that actually most things are more similar than we think, but we sort of go, oh, that's different. And we spot the bit that's different and we, we kind of give it more focus and attention. Yes, yes. And, and some, of, some of our market research techniques and things are designed to highlight differences. I remember years ago, someone from Dunhumby saying to me, oh, yes, I saw your research on, on how user bases of brands don't differ. Yeah, yeah. We, we always produce them as indexes we have we have to we have to on any sort of thing we always do as an index because if, if we show the the actual data to people they're like but there's no difference and, <laughs> there's and, nothing to sell yeah and they don't like us doing that they want us to find difference so I'm like, okay i'm not sure that's entirely ethical ethical though it's been very customer oriented giving the customer exactly what they want but it's keeping them in business isn't it but listen this, this is a really really important one isn't it because another i kind of think revelation i had when i read your book was was difference versus distinctive as well and because again this is another trap any brand manager finds is when you get into it you know if you're the yellow fat controller on, on whatever brand of butter am i the one that's slightly creamier is this the one that melts more quickly on toast or something you know you tend to want to divide up your category and, and exaggerate your difference but actually what your research clearly shows is actually distinctive is the more important focus can you explain that a little bit more well, distinctiveness is branding. It's looking like you, which allows consumers to be loyal and go back and go, you know, you know, this, this that's my bank. You know, that's that's the milk we buy. You know, I can I can, I can yeah. pick that up in the supermarket and go home, and and I won't get told off by other family members. You know, that's yes, the one we right. buy. You know, it's the one with the cow on it. I don't know. You know, so distinctiveness is branding, and that helps brand loyalty but we've always had this idea in fact it used to be you know ted levitt said it was the fun most fundamental thing of marketing and phil kotler said you know it's every brand it's essential that you have to have a, a non-trivial a meaningful difference between other brands as a meaningful that the consumer would buy and david acker i think put it he explained the logic you know really well and it seems perfectly logical he said if your brand doesn't have a difference that consumers not only notice, but that they also value, like I want the creaminess, then yeah. how can you have a loyal customer? I mean, why should someone be loyal to you? Why should they say, well, I have a preference for that brand? And that jig seems perfect. It just turns out to be wrong, which is, as I said, the world is a weird place. It turns mm. out consumers don't have to, you know, they can go, no, no, I like this ice cream. Yeah, it's good. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I buy it occasionally. Yes, yes, it's the one with the cow or not, whatever. And if you yep. say to them, <laughs> what is the meaningful difference between the other brands? I'm not sure. I haven't tried uh, many of those other ones. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But I, 
I was once in a room of bankers and all from the same <laughs> brand. And I said, what, which, which bank has the best credit card in the country? And there was silence. For a and then suddenly someone went, oh, ours. And everyone went, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Of course. But, um, of course it is, yes. <laughs> but the realisation, they, they, they were like, well, yeah, I, well, I don't know. And, and if we'd surveyed them, if we'd asked them all to pull out their wallets, we would have seen that even though they banked for bank. They worked for Bank X. Well, they would have credit cards from other banks. And they'd have all stories yeah. of this of, oh, well, I got this, you know, when I was at uni. I mean, and, and if you said to them, you know, what's the difference between your bank's credit card and the other one? I don't know. Well, it's probably a good question. It's a very good experiment that to, to, to ask people that and then to do the wallet challenge. Because the one that I keep seeing is Monzo. I don't know if you, you don't have Monzo in Australia, I don't imagine. I think no. it's a British bank, but they've got a particularly distinctive colour of card it's very very uh -huh. simple but it's just a, okay. it's, a, it's a very unusual color and and so you just notice when someone gets it out of their wallet uh -huh. you go oh what's that very good and yes. most credit cards are gray and black and this one is yes. this, this sort of aqua blue or something you know it's very unusual color or help helping to build the brand in australia we have a there's a concrete yeah there's a concrete company you know you see the concrete mixes driving around and they're for ready mix and they're pink i mean pink oh really who would pink. have a pink concrete mixer it just <laughs> seems so bizarre but it's brilliant. I mean, yeah. that is brilliant. It's a masterstroke. So they've had it for you know, probably decades. And, uh, you know, name another concrete mix company. That's a good survey question. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this is branding. And this is, this is terribly important if you want to have loyal customers. And, you know, if you really are, if your credit card had a better interest rate than everyone else in the market or something, I mean, that's important. Um, that's fantastic. But we don't, usually, we don't usually have a lot of that. Or if we do, you know, it's painfully obvious, you know, cornflakes are different from Cocoa Pops. Yeah, mm. and we can see it. And so this idea, and so you get these market research companies, there's one that, you know, promotes, oh, no, you should have distinctiveness and difference, you know. And oh, the yes. thing is, we went through our massive database and we found brands that rated a little bit, high, a little bit higher on, on the differentiation score also sold at a higher price. Uh, all right, yeah, we found exactly the same thing. They're the the premium brands they better you know, every market has some brands that are higher quality and they're at a higher price and consumers know that they're sort of spinning this as you can you can do this in your advertising campaign what differentiate the brand no i can't people already know like they know you know our ice cream is 12 dollars a liter it has a lot less air in it it is a premium ice cream everyone knows that we can tell yeah. them about that but it's not the advertising doing it yeah it's that it's we also make a cheaper ice cream, a different brand. <laughs> yeah. It has lots more air in it. It's a different price. Yeah, they're differentiated from it. But don't tell me it's the marketing department doing that with their advertising. It's just what it is. There is some real, there is some real differentiation in the market. And you, can, and you don't need to do complicated modeling on data and things. You can ask an eight-year-old <laughs> and they'll say, oh, that's really expensive brands. I know. There's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? Eight-year-old research is yes. <laughs> it'll save you a lot of if, time and money. It's a, it's a bit like uh, segmentation because we've got all sorts of different customers. What differences matter, they should whack you in the, between the eyes. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, you know, 80% of our, our market is female. Yes. It should be really big. And so gender is going to matter. And so, oh, yeah, gender is going to matter on this one. Yeah. Or, you know, we have this. Children's television networks are called that because their audience skews to children. We yeah. don't need to go and do some very clever market research to work that out. Yeah, uh, we are the children's favourite sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so all the segmentation variables should be things like that. And usually, the, I mean, I always tell marketers, geography is probably a massive one. Right? It's going to affect your marketing mix. Find out where your customers live. Mm. Where do they drive? Where do they shop? That really affects buyer behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Gender does in some categories. Wealth does in some categories, but it's usually big things like that. You know, it's very fashionable to say that demographics are useless. I think we only need to apply a bit of common sense to realize there's some, a few demographics around, like uh, Scottish people tend to read Scottish newspapers and buy them in Scottish stores. Why is that? They do. They live in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Let's 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 talk advertising as well, because you know, given the importance of distinctiveness and you know, as you describe, building memory structures that you know, remind you to buy when you buy. What's the role of advertising? Because obviously, you know, you survey 100 people and say, do you respond to advertising? And they'd all say no, wouldn't they? You know, no one would ever claim to have bought something having seen an advert. So how, how does that, how should advertising work? Well, yeah, or or, or if they did, they, they might remember that, yes, the very odd thing where 
you know, they saw an ad for something they never knew existed. And it'd be an exception, wouldn't it? It'd be the very yes. odd, it'd be a very odd case for most people, wouldn't it? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it does occasionally. I mean, occasionally we we see an ad and go, oh wow, that's really cool. I should get one of those. And sometimes we even do go out and buy it, uh, although not always. <laughs> But most of the advertising is to just subtly refresh memory structures and, and make it a little bit easier for us to buy. And so, well, I give, I give the example with, with Coca-Cola, because you were talking about soft drinks that most people are only buying you know, once every year or so. That means, you know, a typical buyer is about tomorrow has about one chance in 500. And so it's quite a reasonable expectation that if we hit them with an ad, that we're not that we are not going to get you know they've seen our advertising before you know it's not, it's not going to suddenly go oh gosh i need to buy tomorrow. this time this yeah. on the 20th time i'm going to respond yeah. yeah but it's quite reasonable to say that the one in 500 chance might now move to two in 500 which is like being hit with a feather it's nothing right and it's exactly why the consumer goes well that's i'm not that wasn't any effect but if you think about it from Coca-Cola's perspective, you know, we had a million people with advertising and they, they all had one chance in 500 and most of two chances in 500. We've just doubled our sales amongst that group. Mm. So it's a real, you know, in aggregate markets, this is a real effect. Of course, that doubling in sales won't occur tomorrow because most of them aren't going to buy tomorrow. They buy spread. once or twice a year, yeah, don't they? So it'll yeah. be spread. That doubling is an effect that's spread very, 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 very thinly out across years. So we have to be honest, most of Coke's sales next month uh, because of advertising that was done 10 years ago you're right we're going, we're going back to my luke said example actually this I, I remember the conversation where we did our relaunch eight week relaunch campaign and uh, and of course we didn't see much change and and of course everyone's going you must john you must be very worried by now and i'm like no no no. i will worry in six months or 12 months i'm not worrying now because actually most people haven't even come back in the category yet you know we've got to we've got to keep this thing going for at least two years and in fact, it did take about 12 months until we started to see sales getting back to where they were before. Yes. You're right. Which is why we see when you turn off advertising, brands don't just fall out of the air. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And actually, I... going back to your previous research, the, the bigger the brand, the, the slower that decay is, and the smaller the brand, the, the steeper. Because yeah. our advertising, so, so most advertising is to feed into mental availability and asset and which in turn helps you know physical availability but it's sort of it's feeding into that and that's the thing that's that's driving sales so we don't get immediate yes. outings. there's other stuff that we do that we we sometimes call advertising which sort of isn't advertising it's 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 more akin to physical availability like like, like google search right it's not advertising it's it's like someone walking up to a shelf you know someone types in yes holiday yeah. to bali yeah they're, you know, they're in the market, right? And, and yeah. we want to then be there. And yeah. so that type of advertising, which we call performance, or we have all these misleading terms, you know, <laughs> activation, right? Which, which suggests, you, you know, here's a consumer who didn't want a lawnmower, but when they saw our ad, it activated them and they decided they needed it. No, it does not. <laughs> it's about catching people when they fall. So someone, someone does yeah. decide they need a lawnmower. Right? And so they suddenly start a little bit of searching, you know? They start paying attention when they see their neighbor using a lawnmower. They're, yeah. they're, they're primed to see lawnmower advertising. And we want to, we want to hit them then because we want to catch as many people who are falling as, as possible. But yeah. that's much more akin to having a shelf display. It's not laying down memory structures amongst people who aren't going to buy for a long time, which is, mm. which is advertising. I've not thought of that before, but, but search is the new shelf. Yes. <laughs> if you think about the, the little shelf wobblers that you have that, 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 that remind you, here's the... Uh... Well, or, or, just, or just being on shelf. It's being on shelf, isn't it, in the first place? And then I guess the ranking is the equivalent yes. of the, hello, yes. look over here. Yes, and, and which bits of the shelf are better, yes. I'm sure our performance marketers are going to hate to be reduced down to the, you know, the basics of in-store theatre, but it's the same thing, isn't it? Yes, and, and, and there are implications of that, which means you know, it should always be on. It's not a thing mm. that you do stop, do stop. There are always people falling. We've got to have a thing to catch them. And that you know, traditionally was the realm of the sales department, not the marketing department. But in a new sort of digital world, we're doing the marketing department's doing a lot of digital stuff, which is very akin to what the, the sales team used to do. And we need well, to be clear on that, that it's, it's different from advertising. Yeah. Yes. Advertising isn't to jerk the needle around and we can't, you know. Yeah. I think I saw a data point from you that it might have been in relation to B2B that 95% of B2B 
category buyers are not in the market at the time you're talking to them. Sort of this thing. was John Dawes, my colleague John Dawes in the Aramburg Bass Institute did that. And, and we published a number of B2B articles with LinkedIn. Yeah. And so he's pointing out, yes, most even B2B, of course, traditionally spends a lot of their budget on salespeople. And so they are very focused on, you know, the, the, the person who's, who's made an inquiry or the people who are in the market. But he was pointing out that, no, no, just like consumer goods, an awful lot of them aren't. And you've got to, but they will one day. You yes. want to be considered, so you need to you need you need to do some broad reach advertising. That data point is is another sort of re, you know revolutionary one because it changes how you think of activation, quote unquote. But because actually you're there to you're there to do mental availability and build memory structures, as you say. That that's the most important task, isn't it? Whereas if all you're churning out is I'm fifty percent off today, you know you're missing the fact that most people that see the communication are not thinking about you right now. No, no. So, you know, it'll be three years time before they need a management consultancy and then they'll call a few to tender. <laughs> and if you haven't gotten to their heads, you don't get asked. So, I mean, by all means, do that fight in the tender when there's three of you, you know, pitching for the business. But the main thing that's going to determine your sales and market share is whether you're in that three. Yes, yes. And, which is exactly is the so same true. as if you're an automotive manufacturer. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, remember, I remember this when I was a client-side CMO is, you know, agencies would pitch to me all the time and they used to get very frustrated, you know, going, why haven't you returned the call? And, and, and I'd, I'd always say, well, I wasn't sat at my desk going, do you know what? I wish a sort of digital marketing agency would pitch to me right now because, you know, I'm, I'm, I never, ever got a pitch at the time I was actually thinking about the problem. But then I was always say to them, but in six months' time, I might be sat there going, I've got a real problem with my digital marketing. Who do I? Yeah. And, and, and you need to be in my head then, right? Mm. So think about what you can do for me now and how you can build a relationship with me now that is not going to cost me anything. That, that means that when I am thinking, you know, and it's profound for business development because, you know, people often take, you know, you get rejected, you know, 95% of the time based on John's research, wouldn't you, in that situation. But you need to be thinking about how do you stay in the mind so that when they are in the moments by, there is no pitch because they're phoning you straight up going, ah, yes, I know exactly who I'm going to call now because I'm already aware of them and I know yes. what they do. This is a, so this is a particular challenge for categories where there is a long interpurchase interval or that or, or that it's just a boring category. I mean, there are some categories that are just, you know, ice cream, soft drinks, they, they are just more interesting categories for us. I mean, I don't know, ever since we were kids, it just, you know, it's never going to go yeah. away. Whereas, you know, yeah. electricity, insurance, management consultants, we, we don't think about them until we need them. And so the great challenge the mental availability challenge is how do i craft some communication that can reach brains when then when they're not in the market and so this is really hard in in areas like durables and you know a standout is it's terrible to use the apple as an example but it's one of the things that apple has is ineffectively cracked i mean I, I, it wasn't deliberate but it's, it's it's fallen into their lap that they got they've got this i mean Partly thanks to Jonathan Ives with great design things, they they got they've got to the point where people think Apple's Apple is quite interesting, and journalists will cover you know then you know here is the you know you could say the new iPhone by now is not actually that interesting, but they do they do get this and so they get attention from even if you've you know you you, you bought an iPhone a year ago you're not in the market for another three years or something you still pay some attention to their oh they've got a new mm. one that. Very, very few durable manufacturers have been able I to agree. do that. You know, like, do you know what, you know, Miele's new washing machine is? No. 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 When they make a new model, do they get in? Does anyone pay any attention? Well, yeah, people who are in the market. No, but does anyone who's not in the market at the moment notice their advertising? And that's where you need a really good ad agency. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, it's like those old, when when we were when we were kids, you had those spot the difference competitions, didn't you? And you had the two things that looked almost the same, and you spent hours going, "What's the difference?" You know, iPhone thirteen to iPhone twelve to iPhone eleven to iPhone ten. Like genuinely, what's the difference? You know. Right. But, but you're Apple, right; they'll create an event. And... But, but, Apple, but Apple has they're in our head for they they produce these radical new products, and so if Apple's Apple's mm. doing something new, I should. 
I should look at it. That, now that's really special. And, you know, it's, that's, I would say, it's historical accident and good luck as much as anything else. But, but, but it highlights the challenge. So if I'm in a category like I'm selling white goods or insurance or management consulting, how do I talk to people who aren't in the market and therefore are screening me out? It's very easy if 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 someone's looking for a lawnmower. It's I can I can do really bo- I can say really boring things like ten percent off this week or you know it, particularly fuel efficient or something like that, and they will pay attention. But how do I talk to the people who aren't interested in the category? Because if you're not interested in buying a lawnmower at the moment, hearing that there's a lawnmower that's it's got ten percent off. Mm. Just not interesting. Not going to happen, is it? Well, as you get go, talking back to insurance, insurance is a really good example actually because in the UK you've got the Meerkats, haven't you? Compare the market, which oh, have yeah. got fifty percent market share, mm. and you've got the Geico Gecko yeah. in the US as well. That I yeah. think went from, I believe it went from tenth or twelfth up to up to number one. In, and you've got in the you've got the British Bulldog. Yes, Churchill. Mm. Yes, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And in fact, awareness of Churchill, you know. Churchill the dog just appears in an ad and everyone goes, I know what that is. Yeah. And they also laugh and they smile and, you know, respond emotionally to it. So it, it's... Yes. So, so people who are not in the market for insurance are actually watching. A cute dog on a skateboard. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is the one they're doing currently. They've got a dog, you've got a dog on a, you've got Churchill on a skateboard with some lovely music going through a city, city centre scene sort of thing. And everyone remembers it. It's why the Aaron Bass Institute has an owl. Because it's not just practicing what we, we preach, but, but also we're a big university, which has mm. its own very big marketing department. And you know they're going to change our logo someday. <laughs> you know? and, uh, this is you future-proofing it, is it? You've it anticipated is, what's coming. I, mean, you know, I cannot be the guy that changed the logo yeah. who's wrote the book on why you yeah. shouldn't change yeah. your logo. Because, well, I mean, yeah. we're quite a big research institute, but still our university is a lot bigger. And if the vice chancellor, if we get a very says, I don't like the blue, we, we, we're going to go to something else, yeah. then we yeah. will not be able to do anything about yeah. that. So how do we defend That's... ourselves? We need something that is not part of the university logo. So, and, I, and, and so drawing on a, a bit of sort of neuropsychology, our, our brains, you see this with children when they're learning the ABC, you know, things around the wall for kids will, will feature mm. a lot of things of food and animals. And evolutionary psychologists say this is because it's very important to learn what you can eat and what might eat you. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I said, make it an animal, you know, do a logo, make it an animal. It's actually, it's actually, it didn't matter. The thing is, we just had to have something. You just, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But an animal is great because um, you, you're right, actually, a lot of the most successful examples do feature pets or, or, or animals or creatures. You're right. It's, yeah. Well, and ap- Apple, I mean, why did they, not, I don't know why they named Apple, Apple, right? And then you had BlackBerry and Orange, and the, the tech sector seemed to go mad on fruit, didn't it? But then, but then you've got a shape, haven't you? You've got the apple shape, which is they are you know. easier for our brains. Right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, someone once pointed out that the the reason that fruit and vegetables typically are not packaged in in supermarkets is because they are already highly distinctive. Yeah. You know, a banana is just amazing. How can we improve on the banana? It's like you can't. It's an amazing brand. It's there. So just make them visible. <laughs> That's all you have to do. Yeah, what fruit can tell you. Yeah, pick the colour, make them distinctive. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. Well, listen, I'm, 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 I must round up with, with yes. a few quick fire questions because very okay. kindly, I, I did a post on LinkedIn. Lots of people responded. We've covered a lot of the questions because a lot of the questions around my yeah, category is different. How does it work? So, so, so look, in, in no particular order, just, just, just for a bit of fun here. So what's the biggest unanswered question in marketing? Well, we have this big research program in the Institute called What's a Spot Worth, which is... So as advertisers, we buy media space, which mm. varies enormously in our reach. We know that. We can get the metrics. Yeah. But as far as like, wow, so two seconds of video on Twitter versus 60 seconds of video in a movie theater, what, what's that worth? What's the difference? And it is not just a case of counting seconds because that would be crazy, right? It's not. No. no, and it's not—it's not even attention, which I know, because I, I, obviously the correlation between the quality of the environment, the nature of the media, yeah. and attention. But I, I remember this on Super Bowl: why do people pay five point six million dollars for thirty seconds in a Super Bowl? But it's actually what it says about you. It's what you can leverage with the trade to get more physical availability. You know, the the the, the implications of a of a spot on a Super Bowl are way different to a you know, normal spot. So yeah, it's also an amazing amount of very fast unduplicated reach. Yes. And reaching all buyers, right? I mean, that, yep. that, if you wanted one yep. thing to go 
far and wide to you know that that would be there's some people Um, saying that attention can be the new sort of media you know currency thing that's it's no nuts yes we need some attention absolutely but it's not as simple as just you know a bit more bit more attention you know twice as much attention's worth twice as much no no it's not that simple and attention's quite complicated too it's not just eyes and things next question right uh, training so this is one I, obviously you, you're sponsored uh, a lot of the work you do is for sponsors ha- have you considered or will you consider putting on any, any training for sort of people like me or people in marketing who want oh, to learn well, more of yes the i mean we are in a university and and we you know we like to think we have the best marketing degree in the world i i I think that is a claim we can actually make, but it's not access- yeah. it's not it's not accessible if you're not in Adelaide. And so no, yeah. this is definitely on our uh, agenda to be able to have some sort of global reach, a suite to allow people to do you know formal university qualifications. Looking forward to that one, absolutely brilliant. So Russell Parsons said to me on reflection, would you change anything about how brands grow? You mentioned la- uh, overlapping earlier. Is there anything you would change about how brands grow? Uh, yes, I, uh, definitely about the overlapping. I don't properly explain the natural monopoly law, which, which points out the importance of reaching light category buyers. Because it's very fashionable at the moment. To, there's this thing of you know reaching heavier category buyers. It sounds great, you know. Okay, you know they don't have to be loyalists to me, but if they're heavy category buyers. But as I like to explain to people, how if you want your category to grow, you have to even reach people who aren't even buying your category at the moment. So I would do that. But um, some of these things I do, if you, if you buy the ebook version, or if you go to the Apple, actually that's the best one, but there's also a Kindle one. Uh, they have an extra chapter and, and they cover some of these yeah. things. Brilliant. This one, this one came from Mark Ritson. So I asked him and he, he was intrigued to know a lot of the work a lot of the, 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 the data and research and how brands grow comes from Andrew Ehrenberg's work that goes back quite some time. What was it that changed in terms of, now this might just be my perception, but I think it must be true, but awareness of what you do and, and, and understanding has grown exponentially in the last 10 years. So what changed? Was it as simple as writing a book or were there other things that meant that have contributed to the success of the Institute? Uh, yeah, well, I worked for Andrew Ehrenberg for I guess about ten years, and and with Gerald Goodhart for 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 much longer than that. And so I think well, I think Andrew would say I mean he would look back on his early work and say oh my goodness I read it it's so researchy and yes. and not yes. spelling <laughs> out the implications and that's true of when we started you know when I when I started giving seminars with Andrew I mean Andrew had actually picked up a, a reputation of being. Amongst even amongst people who sponsored the work of them being very depressing, that they would go, so my loyalty's fixed, is it? And I can't change that. So you know, like, what do I do? Sometimes Andrew was a bit flippant of going, yeah, well, yep, it's tough. Yep, sorry. People, <laughs> so it didn't look. In fairness, a- Andrew Andrew didn't work in marketing, and so and so I think I think the big change is we've we've thought a lot about the implications, and that takes. Andrew always said the D part of R&D is the bit that takes a long time. I'm quite embarrassed that it took us a decade, I think, to be able to explain to, to sponsors in all sorts of different ways. You know, we're on record of, you know, you need consistency in your media spend. And, mm. But, it, yeah, it took a decade for us to come up with the most simple guideline, which is spread it out in time. So this month, yeah. spend about a twelfth of your budget. This week, yeah. about a 50th. Yeah. Okay, spread. That's- yeah. That is the golden rule. You will always get more reach yeah. for your dollar in the long run if you do that. And once we got it, it was like, oh, that's so simple. Why didn't we? And then you look at things we've written previously and how we're making it much more complicated. And so it, it's hard working out the implications of things takes takes a long time. I'm sure we'll look back at the Irmi Bass Institute and look back in 10 years in time and go, oh, gosh 2022 gee oh geez we yeah we didn't we didn't realize that this meant that yeah Yeah. i i i think even the title of your book is important the fact that you framed it as how brands grow going back to your what you said at the beginning of the of the interview as a marketer you've got to justify to the cfo why you're spending money on the things you are and you've got some empirical evidence to say why And, and i think so framing it as how brands grow rather than here's the research on why loyalty is it doesn't yes. work as a metric you know, do you know what I mean? So you so you didn't you didn't think I should have gone with the title of Twelve Empirical Generalizations? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. If only, if Byron, if only. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and Thomas Bain from London was uh, the one who mainly put in the um, what marketers don't know as the subtitle. Yeah. He said, put something yeah. in there that'll, that'll yeah. make people go, what? What? I don't know. Yes. You know, it'll, we, we don't know it all. We don't know it all. I, 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 yeah, exactly. I, I love that. That was that yeah. was a good one. And I also love, by the way, as I said at the beginning, I love the, in the very first, I think it's page two, where you go through all the myths and go, if you believe all this, you need to, <laughs> you need to read the rest of the book sort of things. So anyway, so I think you, you, you've, you've gone head on into into the marketing myths that we all believe, which is obviously a big market. So listen, sticking to sticking to Ritson, I, I've heard him two or three times referring to you as the Dark Lord, right? Is this some banter between you? <laughs> what, 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 like, you know, and what do you, what would you call him? Do you, do you have a name for... No, I, I don't. <laughs> now that's, I, the Dark Lord of Penetration, that, that's just Mark's brilliant. Yeah. You know, he's very creative. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I've said he's the, he's, you know, possibly the, the best business journalist in the, in the world which which mark said was a slight backhanded you know thing of saying that he isn't really a university professor he's a journalist yeah, <laughs> yeah. but come on we are really underserved in business full stop uh, yeah. and uh, real journalism and we we get we, we get you know people you know procter and gamble gave their you know results today start you know journalism like we get yeah. press conference reported we don't get people who think Right, and explore mm. stuff. And so Mark is off the charts good at that. He writes, yes. I can't, but I mean, sometimes he writes stuff that is too flippant and, and not good because he's got deadlines. To, I think he does, doesn't he, an article every week. Oh, it's amazing. Like, Unilever like, produced their results in a couple of days. Mark's got an article up there yeah. linking it back to strategy. You know, yeah. it, it, brilliant and, and very entertaining as well. Yes, I, I think he's, he is. So, he's unique in his journalistic style. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably should slow down and do like one of them. I did a column for AdMat for a while and I started to go, this is just like, also I thought felt I was, I was, felt I was talking to the same people over and over. So, um, yeah, well, I think it's, it's well, I mean, that's one of the comments on the on the LinkedIn thread before this episode was, you know, someone saying, is Mark going to write a book? And I almost think he doesn't need to because he's written, he must have written thousands of Marketing Week articles. Yes. And that's all mental availability. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're signing up to his MBA, right? So yeah. that, that's the that's, that's the royalty, right? You don't yeah. need, he doesn't need a book to, you know, to drive his mental availability, does he? No, I mean, and he's, you know, he's gifted at, as you say, you know, something comes up about Unilever and he, you know, he can shed some light and thinking on that, that is worth reading, you know, so it's very, very cool. So I think that's a great thing. And I'm, I'm sure that's what motivates him that he gets this, you know, creative flash. Yeah, definitely. Resonant, a couple of, a couple of ones to end on then let's go to, so I, I know you've, you've got a point of view that might be slightly different to most people's on the climate change, you know, climate change. Can you share a bit about that? I mean, just a climate realist. I, I like all, like all things. I anything that's passionate, important to me, and I've been a long time, you know, yeah. environmentalist and things. I, I I want to. I don't. I don't just. I don't just read the Guardian. You know, I I actually I actually re, have read all the IPCC reports. You know, and I read yeah. stuff. So and and that has actually considerably changed my. I used to be very worried about global warming that it was you know catastrophic and things, and now I realise it's a it's a big thorny important. Difficult question, mm. right? It's a really difficult, mm. difficult thing to decarbonize an economy. But it's it, it's a I you know I I get very annoyed when people form tribes and think there's only two groups. Yeah. You're either sure that the planet is going to blow up, which yeah. it's not, and humanity's going to be wiped out, and you know, ridiculous things that no climate scientists say, or or you're a denier. You know, and there's no mm. realist people in between. Well, there are and real climate scientists don't write newspaper articles. So yeah. I've learned it's it's far less a it's a thorny problem. But good news, you know, I can tell my daughter that she is going to grow up in a world that's going to be pretty much as lovely as it is now. In fact, yeah. you know, every, every single metric is just amazing. The world that she grows up in will be better than the world that I've grown up in, and, and her children are yeah. better still. It's just amazing. And so, you know, a big mantra for me is to is to encourage people to read books on human development and mm. the importance of free trade and marketing and how that has transformed our world. And therefore, be proud of marketing and business people. You know, and there's, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Bill Gates earning billions of dollars. He and he doesn't have to give it. He is giving it all away, but you know, he doesn't have to give it all away to be a good person. The good he did for the yeah. planet was to bring productivity software onto lots of desks. The economy, I mean, it's, it's a, again, abstract concepts, hard, but the economy is people doing things for other people. And you get paid a lot right. if you're doing something 
that lots of people like that you're doing <laughs> you know you're you're doing value bringing joy this is a good thing this is not so it really does pain me when you see marketers of all people of course should have come out of business schools and should have business degrees although i understand that 95% don't but they should know that free trade is fair trade that the the biggest thing you can do to to stop a country cutting down its rainforests and shooting animals and things like that is to buy their products and make them wealthier and then they start to care about these things we, and we had the evidence is very stark there's a lovely book called by a guy who's an ex-marxist anarchist and i think it's called <laughs> in praise of global capitalism where he got very passionate about the stuff and he started to read the evidence and then he was so shocked he had to give up on all his you know beliefs that you know the major reasons that africa has not grown like asia has is because it was very protectionist a lot of protectionist governments a lot of anti-trade and trying to you know and as marketers if we want to have purpose well we should be telling all our consumers buy stuff from developing countries it's the biggest single thing Brilliant. you can do well, to well, save the planet well, Byron, I think that is the perfect point to end, end our conversation. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, just So just to round up, if people want to get in touch with you, follow you, where can you be found? Google's very good at finding me. It is, isn't it? Yes. Lots of How Brands Grow pictures come up, don't they? Yeah. Um, but you're on, you're on LinkedIn, of course. You're on LinkedIn. Twitter, Byron Sharp, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the Ehrenberg Bass Institute has a great website, marketingscience.info, which does have, you know, public things. And we're very open to answering questions from people. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm going to go have my dinner now. So I hope you all found that a fascinating conversation with uh, Byron Sharp. I know I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing him and getting to know him a bit better. If you'd like to follow Uncensored CMO and never miss an episode, then why not go over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe? then you'll never miss an episode in future. If you'd like to leave me a review, please do. You can do that both on Apple and on Spotify, remembering that five is better than one. Um, but no, honestly, please do leave me a review. And also any comments, so you can get in touch with me on Twitter, at CMO. I'm also on LinkedIn at John Evans, so that's John without an H, so do look me up. And uh, give me some feedback, and let me know if there's any guests out there that you think I should have on the show in future. But listen, thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.